morning, everybody. It's great to be back. I haven't visited for a while. I'm sorry. I've been quite busy with the church uh, in Sunnybank. But it's good to be here. I'm really thankful for Southside, the Southside family. I love them, that we have such a great partnership. That I get to work in the offices with the rest of the staff at Southside and be able to share and bounce ideas off them and just unload to them every week. It's just been so uh, helpful and I'm so grateful for, for all of you and for the support we get. Thank you for those who visit us as well. It's always lovely to see our Southside family at Providence on a Sunday afternoon. I'm going to pray for us and let's get into Ruth chapter 4. Father Lord, we do pray to you now. We ask you that um, you will help me speak, speak faithfully from your words, uh, speak faithfully from um, your, your Bible. And we pray, Lord, that your spirit will be at work in our hearts, Lord, work in us so that we'll hear your word and respond to your word and want to live for you and for Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I like to watch a lot of movies, and I can be really picky with the movies I watch, right? It needs to have a really good plot. And if I'm not brought into the story in the first 15 minutes, then I'm, I'm, I just want to turn it off. I just want to leave. It's just, it's boring. It needs, it needs character development, right? It needs good character development. It needs to have some sort of suspense that's building. It needs to climax well, and it needs to end well as well. I hate movies that end badly, don't you? You know, I, I think we all hate those, those bad endings to the movies where, where people just wake up and it was all a dream, or ones where the movie just doesn't end, it just stops, there's no resolution, and the credits start rolling, you're thinking, what, just, what did I just watch? What just happened? You know, it just finishes and the problem is still there, and you're just frustrated instead, you just wasted two hours of your life, you just think, what was that? You know, or if the problem was resolved too easily and it's just like, you know, oh, there's so much searching and looking and, and it just got resolved the problem was just gone the next second we don't even know what happened to the characters afterwards we can just assume everyone was cool and happily ever after sort of thing you know it's crazy because these days you see a lot of movies coming out about zombies and i don't know if you watch zombie movies they are a bit entertaining but um they never really end well there's never really a good ending to a zombie movie you can expect that when you go into it you know imagining a world where the undead take over and and living in shopping centers eating canned food and looking for your weapon of choice you know they're they're good at playing on our imaginations and drawing us into this fantasy world but you know is there really any hope can humanity really flourish after a zombie apocalypse you know i, I don't know it makes you think it makes you think doesn't it? why does a movie make you feel so bad when it doesn't have a good ending you see, with all the movies, we enjoy them because it begins with a sense of happiness. It starts in a place of happiness, of peace, but it quickly escalates, doesn't it? It escalates with suspense and disaster. You know, your, your emotions are taken on a roller coaster journey. And, you know, and the goal of a good movie, a good story rather, is to land you in a place of resolution, right? You know, even better, a place of restoration. You know, we want to see the beginning restored, where the characters, the, the story is at an even better place than where it began. You know, why are we so captivated by, by the promise of the happily ever after? You know, or movies that promote an, a sort of elysium where we can find a place of goodness, you know, even perfection that lasts forever. We love stories about restoration because we all deep down know that there's something not right about us. Something not right about the world we live in, and we long for something better. We long for things to be fixed and improved or made new again. You know, 
That's why we love watching those TV shows about beauty makeovers or car makeovers. Don't tell James this, but I love house rules and how they can renovate a house in a week and how unrealistic that is, but how fun that is to watch. You can see a house restored in a week. You know, those, those shows where people start from broken homes, uh, we, like The Nanny, if you ever watched that TV show, and, you know, feel-good movies, stories that are told to us where something starts off broken and people end up happy, where restoration comes about and everything's made right. We all hope for that, don't we? In our lives and in our world. You see, our human hearts, they long for restoration. And today the Bible gives us the question, where can we seek this happy ending, this restoration for our stories, restoration for your life and my life in a world where there is so much disaster and chaos and and man flu happening around us. Ruth's story is one where we see that snapshot of restoration in the Bible, where we see God at work in the life of this young, young woman and how through disaster we see God's grand plan of redemption and salvation occur. See, these four chapters of Ruth are short. It's, short, it's a short book in the Bible where we take a, a break from the grand narrative and the grand story um, in the Bible where we, where we take a break from Israel's history even to zoom in on the lives and characters of these few people as they figure out life in this little town of Bethlehem. And although we don't read about God's interaction with them, we can see God's hand at work in the background of the story, can't we? So if you guys haven't been around for the last few weeks and you don't know anything about Ruth, I'm just going to recap it really quickly. Uh, hopefully you've had a chance to read it at home. But the story in, in the Bible begins with a man called Elimelech, right? And his name means God is my king. But ironically, he chose to distrust, distrust God by leaving Bethlehem, uh, which, which is a land that God had provided for his people. And he took his wife and his sons to Moab, a foreign country that worshipped a different God, and his sons there married Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah. Now, after 10 years, tragically, we read that Elimelech died, uh, and his two sons, Marlon and Killian, die as well, and we're left with Nomi, his wife, his widowed wife, and his daughter-in-laws, Ruth and Orpah. Orpah decides to stay in Moab because there she'll have more likelihood of finding a future husband, and it's, it's her home, essentially. But Ruth has this really this conversion experience where she puts her faith and her trust in Naomi and Naomi's God, our God, essentially at this point. And we read about this faithful loyalty between Ruth and Naomi. It's a beautiful story between the two. And Naomi, she returns back to Bethlehem. She returns back to Bethlehem bitter, feeling empty, feeling broken, feeling that God has taken it all away from her. Her husband's dead. Her sons are dead. And by God's providence, by his sovereign plan, Ruth goes out. Ruth goes out and she finds food for herself and for Naomi. And as part of the welfare system in Israel, she stumbles upon a field of wheat that belongs to a man called Boaz. It just so happens that this man is a relative of Elimelech, Naomi's husband. He happens to be a very kind, compassionate, and generous man and provides safety and food for Ruth in abundance. Is it all a coincidence or is God at work in this story? See, Naomi strongly encourages Ruth to to make a move on Boaz, to get Boaz to propose to her. And last week, uh, I'm not sure what Ross covered in chapter 3, but Ruth approaches him and wakes him up in the night and asks him to essentially take her under his wing to care for and love. 
He's an, he's an older man and he's shocked because he's heard about how noble she is and, and what a great daughter-in-law she's been and why, why would she go for an old bloke like himself, not a young, fresh spring chicken or something like that. One, one of the young men in town, he's taken aback but feeling pretty chuffed that she chose him. But he doesn't say he'll just marry her, he'll marry her just yet. He says that there's another, another guy in line who has the rights to redeem her and the land that belonged to Limelech first. You know, we're left on a cliffhanger in chapter 3, aren't we? And what he does, Boaz, he goes and takes action. He's a man of action. That's why I love Boaz, because he, he takes initiative. And that's what we're reading in chapter 4, when he goes out into town to find this other relative. Chapter, chapter 4, verse 1, let's read it together. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there, just, just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. I'm going to stop there. He shows up at the town gate. He gets there, and just at that moment, the person he's looking for walks past. Coincidence? I'm not sure. Maybe it's just being in a little town like Bethlehem, a bit like being in Brisbane. You know, you go down to the shops at Garden City, and you just see people, and you're like, what are you doing here at the same time as me? How can this even be possible? We must live in a real... It happened to me when I was at uh, a Japanese noodle shop that had only 20 seats. I went there to have date night with my wife, and it just so happened my sister and her brother-in-law decided to eat there at the exact same time. We walked through the doors at the true story. How does this even happen? It's like this. It's a little town in Bethlehem. You sit down and your relative just shows up. And so he just sits there and Boaz says, oh, hey, it's you. Sit down. I need to talk to you about something. And so they do. And what happens next? Boaz t- goes and takes 10 elders of the town and he says, sit here. And they did so. So he makes one guy sit down and then he goes and gets 10 other guys and he just finds them and tells them to sit down as well. He must have a lot of authority. But what he's doing right now is he's really fulfilling all the legal obligations it's, that's required for him in ancient Israel. He's the, the transferring of rights, basically getting the, the justice of peace to, to sit down and watch them and be witnesses. He's doing what's right by the law. And because he wants to acquire the land and also marry Ruth. In verse 3, he says to the guardian redeemer, Nomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also require Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. Boaz asked him to redeem the property. You have the rights of the property as the next of kin. Redeem it. You have, you have the rights to purchase it from Naomi as her husband, Elimelech, is now deceased. And what does this relative say? Of course I'll redeem it. Man, if I get to inherit land at a from a deceased estate, that's really cheap. Why wouldn't you, right? I mean, prices are going crazy in Brisbane and Sydney for land these days. You just wanna, you can understand where he's coming from. I'll take that land for sure, I'll buy it. But he goes, but Boaz says, but there's a catch. If you wanna redeem this land, you also have to marry the dead man's In this case, he's referring to Ruth. You know, she's the eligible widow of, a, of marriageable age, you know, that can give birth to future children. He says, you gotta marry Ruth as well. Now that matters. The guy starts hesitating. You know, it's, he, he starts hesitating because he's like, wait, I've got to take on a Moabite widow? She's not an Israelite? That's, gonna, that's not going to look good for me, is it? I mean, that's, 
there's no prenup here. I gotta give her my possessions, and and she's gotta she's gonna share in everything that I own. I'm not too sure about this anymore. And whereas you got Boaz here, this noble character, this man who wants, who's got so much integrity and character, he cares about really restoring the memory of the deceased here, the restoration of the clan of Elimelech. Boaz is dedicated to this family. Boaz sees an opportunity, not just for land, he sees an opportunity to redeem Ruth, which is what, which is, which is so much, this is what he's really more concerned about. And it's a beautiful picture here of Boaz actually caring for Ruth. And in verse 6, at this the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I can't do it. Verse 7, now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions. And so the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. This is funny, hey. He just, literally, he, he takes off his heavy arms and he gives it to Boaz, his Birkenstocks, whatever sandals you wear, his flip-flops. He says, I hand over my rights to you. Purchase the field. Redeem it. Redeem Ruth yourself. And Boaz announces, Today you are my witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilian and Marlon. I've also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Marlon's widow, as my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are my witnesses. So in our story, Boaz takes initiative, doesn't he? He takes initiative as a kinsman, his, his integrity, he's, he's trying to save this family, the memory of this family. He's got so much integrity. He's, he looks righteous. He looks to fulfill the law. He does what's right by his relatives, by his, by his town. He obeys God's laws to do what is right. He's obedient to God. He wants to be the, the kinsman. He's willing to take on that role to be the welfare for this widow and her relatives and the next of kin. And in Israelite law, if someone near to you, related to you, ends up bankrupt, then my brother or my cousin or nearest relative would come to rescue, redeem the property. That's, that's what he's trying to do. And for the sake of the reputation of the clan and tribe, to marry the widow too that's left behind. Boaz wanted to fulfill it. He agrees to it. He buys the property, he marries Ruth, and he seeks to restore Ruth and Naomi. I mean, that's just our first scene at the town gate. And in this first scene, we get to take a peek into the heart of Boaz and his intentions to do what is right, to bring restoration. In our second scene, we see the epilogue to our story, don't we? And it's a, it's a really a stark contrast from the prologue. It gives us a happy ending. Um, boy gets girl, they marry, they have a child. And who do the women celebrate with? In verse 13 to 17, with Naomi, they say this, they say, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and who's better to you than seven sons has given him birth. You see what's happening here. You see how the ending restores the beginning. It shows how, how Naomi began with this emptiness, this brokenness. She came back from Moab broken and depressed and empty and bitter and now finishes with fullness and joy. You know, sorrow is now marked by joy and new life, a baby. God has restored Naomi through Ruth. It began with loss, it ends with gain. 
It began with death. It ends with birth. The book of Ruth ends with a resolution to the problem that was presented at the beginning. Ruth's story is one of redemption. It's one of restoration. And you'd think that's, that's where the story ends. You know, I could finish right now. I'm done for today. I've, you know, I've finished preaching. I can stop there because the story of Ruth is finished. She's fin- it's, a, it's a happy ending. There's a baby in her lap and we can all celebrate. But the chapter actually doesn't stop there, does it? The author of Ruth wants us to know a little bit more. And there's a, from verse 18 to 22, there are all these names that are mentioned to us. And usually when we see names, sometimes we just want to gloss over them because they're, they're too hard to pronounce and they probably don't mean anything to us anyways. It might have meant something to Israel, but it doesn't mean anything to us. But I think we actually need to look into this. I think we need to actually understand what these names are actually talking about. Let's, let's read them. Verse 18, this then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron the father of Ram. Ram the father of Minadab. Minadab the father of Nashon. Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon the father of Boaz. Boaz the father of Obed. Obed the father of Jesse. And Jesse the father of David. Right? Do you know where I'm going? The last few verses of this chapter tells us the son of Jesse is David. Do you know who David is? It's the great King David of the Bible. He's a, he's a hot shot in the Bible. We should all know who King David is if we've been going to church all our lives. I mean, if we grew up in church, we should know who King David is. If you're new to church, then this is a great king in the, in the history of Israel, in the Bible. He's mentioned so many times. Jesus talks about David. He's a huge character. Half the Psalms are written by him. He's a big deal. Yet, he's a descendant of a random Moabite woman. All of a sudden, everything comes into perspective. You know, it's like wiping the smudges off your glasses. Everything becomes, you know, in high definition. Something far greater is going on in this story. And God is doing more than just blessing an old grandma with a grandson. I mean, that's a great blessing, but there's so much more happening, isn't there? He's actually paving the way and preparing for the coming of the greatest human king that Israel would have in its history. King David. You know, the preacher John Piper, he puts it this way, the simple little story opens out like a stream into a great overflowing river of hope. Friends, this story is far bigger than just two widows. This story points us to God's greatest redemption plan, his great restoration plan for all of humankind. But more importantly, why does this matter to us if we're not, we're not Israelites, are we? Why does this matter to us? Because through this genealogy of imperfect people, of women of foreign blood, comes to us a redeemer far greater than the man Boaz. You know, it's through this history that Jesus the Christ is born. Let me show you this in chapter 1 of, of Matthew, if you guys want to flip to that with me. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 to 6. I'm not going to read it all. There's a lot of names here. Verse 1 to 6. This is the genealogy. I should give you a few moments to flip to that, sorry. Matthew chapter 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. 
Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Minadab, Minadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Sam. I'm reading this quite quickly. Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed the father of Jesse, and then Jesse the father of King David. And then if we skip down to verse 14, it says, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Elihud, Elihud the father of Eliza, Eliza the father of Mathen, Mathen the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. This, this should blow your minds, right? I mean, the Messiah in the story of Ruth is Boaz. He redeems Ruth. But this Redeemer really encapsulates the bigger redemption story for us. Boaz paid the price for Ruth, obeyed the laws and, that were required for him to acquire the land and Ruth as his wife. He did what was necessary out of a generous and compassionate heart towards Ruth, who was an outsider. He wanted to redeem them and he did it with integrity and a righteous character. The actions of Boaz towards Ruth, really, they're a reflection of how Jesus has restored us. God saw a human race that lived in sin, you and I. He took it into his hands to, to send Jesus, his son, into our world. And although he lived a perfectly sinless life, out of compassion, he paid the price for you and I. He gave up his own life on the cross. And by doing this, he restores the human race to, to how we were originally created, into a relationship with God. So now there is no bad blood. There is no beef between us and God. Jesus breaks down every barrier because he substituted his life for us. He paid the ransom for God's wrath upon us by, by taking upon himself. You see, because of our sin, we're, we are the refugees before God. We're unworthy to be part of his kingdom. We're like the Moabite. But Jesus sees us, and out of his generosity and compassion, gifts us with salvation. He gifts us with an eternity with God. We are made for a greater world beyond this one. And Jesus accomplishes that for us by his redeeming blood. He pays the price for us. Isn't that a glorious thought? that we can know and have the very real and solid hope of restoration in Jesus. I mean, let's think about this. We look around. You know, we can see that there's, there's something wrong with this world, right? I mean, there's a reason why Donald Trump got voted in as president. His slogan is, let's make America great again. He wants restoration. People want that. And, and it's sad. You know, we look at we look at that presidential race, and and, and we know that the, the the people that were in that race had flaws. We've got issues in our world like war and famine and disease. You know, but even on the everyday level, we see the brokenness. I mean, there are, you know, you can play a game of soccer or cricket with your friends, and how quickly does competitiveness lead to anger, and anger lead to to punches being thrown? You know, a friend once, once said the ideal of heaven. He said this to me. He said the ideal of heaven would be, you know, the idea, the idea that we can leave our doors unlocked and our cars unlocked wherever we want. And I don't know if you already do that, but it's not getting safe anymore in Brisbane to do that. 
I was in Byron Bay um, during the holidays, and you're driving around, and you see little kids like seven, eight years old, and they're just walking around the streets with their friends. And I'm thinking, where are your parents? You know, you just don't do this. You just don't walk around. You're going to get abducted. You're going to something bad's going to happen to you. But it's Byron Bay. They just they're free. They're carefree. You know, that was me 20 years ago. 20. 25 years ago in, in Brisbane, I could just walk around carefully. But I, I worry now about the children, you know, in the neighborhood who are walking around without their parents. I worry about them because of, I read scary stories. I don't even have my own kids yet, and I'm terrified for them. You know, we imagine a world where we could, be, we could feel totally safe from harm, from abduction, from kidnap, from getting swooped by magpies on your bicycle, from a world of of hurt and pain that we experience in relationships, the brokenness in our families, the anxiety and depression that that gets triggered from our loneliness or our self-esteem. To imagine a world where, where people don't hurt other people, where friendships are both deep and wide, where emotions aren't swayed by our hormones or I lose my temper on the road or or I'm a victim of another person's road rage. Even if you've had a relatively easy life up to this point, you can understand we live in a broken world where we don't feel safe, where we don't feel secure about ourselves, where we can't trust others, where death is on our doorstep and we never feel good enough. We never feel pretty enough. We never feel buff enough. We're, our health and our body fails us. We live in a world that isn't perfect. We live in bodies that aren't perfect. We're not perfect. There's brokenness. And at one end of the spectrum, some of us might feel like Naomi and Ruth in their story, where you feel just bitter and empty. But when we look to God, we have this, we look to a God who has a grand plan of eternity, heaven with him forever. God has that in store for you and for me through Jesus. And there in heaven, there'll be restoration, a restoration God had in store for our world and humankind and you and me from the beginning. Why? To display his glory, to show his love and his grace to you and to me. He initiated this restoration plan and is bringing it to completion in and through Jesus. You know, God wrote that redemption story for us. He planned it from the beginning. He wrote Ruth's story and he writes our names into his story of redemption through Jesus. So as we live our lives, we need to see God's redemptive and providential hand at work. That his grand plan has our names written on it. Redemption has come. Fullness and restoration is coming through Jesus. Some of you on the other hand of the on the other end of the spectrum, you might feel like this is the best life now, right? You only live once, do everything crazy, do everything while you still can. This world is the best you'll ever get. I mean, some of us treat world, the world like that, our lives like that. Now, if that's your view of the world, then I'm going to say this, you're far too easily pleased. You're far too easily satisfied. There is something far greater in store that God has planned out for you and for me, where every pleasure and delight will be met, where there is no more sorrow or hurt, and we get to experience the presence 
of greatness and glory forever with God. That's the restoration God is bringing about. What does that mean for us today? What are the implications? Firstly, because we know the ending to our story, we can have courage today in our weaknesses. Ruth is inspiring because she has this determination, this faith against all odds. And God in his faithfulness uses her to fulfill his grand plans. Does it blow your mind that Ruth was a new believer? She didn't have Bible studies to go through and she just had faith in this God. She didn't know how to flip through the Bible and, and, and know all the popular Christian songs. She didn't know about Jesus and what he had to, he'd come to do for, but she had faith in the God of Israel and faith drove her to obedience. What does having faith for you look like? Having faith in King Jesus mean for you? Are you willing to be bold, a bold character in God's story? The moments where you're not feeling very bold, will you trust that God can use your weakness, use your shame, your vulnerability to change the lives of those around you? Ruth was a Moabite widow living in an Israelite world. What was her rate of survival? You know, if God can use a woman like her, he can, he can and he will use you too. Everything we do in obedience, no matter how big or small, it will take courage, but God has our backs because you're an important character in his story. Secondly, we can't be discouraged if, if we feel that our life is just ordinary. We just go to work every day, we look after our kids, we go to church. You know, God uses, chose, chose this really random story to be included in the Bible for us for a reason. He wants to see that the ordinary lives are part of something greater. He also wants us to see that everything in our lives, our triumphs and our setbacks, are, are actually there to encourage us to look forward to the conclusion, to the restoration. When we realize that God has a purpose for the ordinary life, we begin to see life with purpose, don't we? There's actually a purpose behind the boring stuff and the sad stuff even. Because God in his grace is using those feelings of, of dissatisfaction to point you to him, to point you to his promise of a restored world. C.S. Lewis, the great author, he wrote, he wrote on this and he says this, If we find ourselves with the desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. The story of the Bible starts with the Garden of Eden. A world of perfect harmony where humans lived in peace and could see, hear, and, and touch God. You know, of course, after the fall, death came into the world and things have never been the same. But, you know, as we flick through the Bible and we read these stories of God using ordinary people in ordinary circumstances to bring about the conclusion to his story, that day will come. We won't be dissatisfied by the ending. Because God promises he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. No more boredom, no more futility, no more loneliness, no more sickness, no more tiredness or brokenness in our families, no more struggling with doubt or wondering if God is even there because we'll be dining at his table in his presence forever. If you're in Christ, that's the ending to your story. A few years back, my wife and I, Heidi, we visited the happiest place on earth, AKA Disneyland. It's considered the happiest place on earth, right? Because it's filled with happy people. 
and all the people in Disney in their, in their costumes, they have these giant smiles on their faces. They're just so happy. There, was, there wasn't a single piece of trash on the floor. And on, on the, after a full day of, of food and, and roller coasters, you get spoiled at the end of the day with, with fireworks and snowflakes on display. It's a place that strives to bring out your inner child, right? To be captivated by wonder, the wonder of magic. As soon as you leave the, the gates of Disneyland, though, you're confronted with reality. You know, we headed back into LA and the streets of LA, they're marked with trash, traffic jams, having, having to walk past shady people and run down shop fronts, you know, on the way back to our dingy motel room. The stark contrast was so clear. Disneyland is fake, and I'm pretty sure my wife Hardy knows that too, but the few hours we spent in that fake world helped us to realize that we all long for a better and restored world. God has placed something better than Disneyland. God has placed the picture of eternity into our hearts, hasn't he? Because he's pointing us to him and the grand plan he began and is fulfilling in the world through Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that through Jesus we have a hope of restoration. We have the hope of a better ending, that we get to look forward to heaven, that we get to look forward to being in your presence, the presence of greatness for eternity. We're so thankful for Jesus. We're so thankful that through his blood and his resurrection, Lord, on the cross, that we can come to know you be in relationship with you and that we can have the hope of of life forever in jesus name we pray amen